story is told of an RAF fighter pilot in the late 1950s. He was flying home for Christmas Eve from the Allied air base in northern Germany to be home to England in time to be with his family. Though the war had been over for a dozen years, there still was a sense of nervousness at times because the world was still a very volatile place. As he took off heading for home that Christmas Eve, he knew that in about two and a half to three hours he should be landed safely, and in two or three hours later he'd be home with his family. As he crossed out of European airspace, he came across the channel, entered into British airspace or English airspace, and something unimaginable happened. He heard a snap, and immediately his instrumentation panel went blank. There had been a short circuit in the electrical system. It caused him alarm because it was already dark, but his training kicked in like instinct, And so he picked up the microphone to communicate with the English air towers and coded through saying, in distress, needing help. As he sent the message, he waited for the response to come back. Click, click, click. The short circuit that had taken out his instrumentation panel also took out his communications. He knew he was in trouble. And to make it triply difficult, as he came into English airspace, and many of us can imagine it, a thick fog greeted him, shrouding over the Isle of Britain where he was trying to get to. He knew he was in trouble. He had enough fuel for about an hour, he figured. And so his training kicked him. He scaled back on his speed to take it down to minimal speed to preserve as much fuel as he could, not knowing how long it would take for him to find where he needed to go. He knew there were a number of air bases around, but the fog was so thick that he really didn't know where he was. In the absence of any instrumentation, he had no clue. And so again, his training kicked in. He did a maneuver that he had learned years ago when he was a young boy taking his early flight training. He slowed his speed down to just barely above what would be sustainable, and he began to fly in a square pattern, one mile east, one mile north, one mile west, one mile south. It was an old school trick or tradition that a plane in trouble would make that circuit and hopefully the radar on the ground would pick up on it and realize there was a, 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 an airplane in distress. And he completed the circuit two times, around, up, around, up, wondering when somebody would pick them up on their radar. And it was on the third trip around that about 500 yards away from him, an old Lancashire bomber, I don't know if you remember that particular plane, came into his view site and waggled its wings saying, we've got you. And for the next half hour, that Lancashire bomber guided him through the fog down into where he would land, not knowing exactly which airport or which air station. And as they got closer to the landing, the Lancashire bomber, the pilot, he could see him because they were close enough, held his hand up in another universal signal and and did this, which was code for in five seconds, you will break through the clouds, be ready. And so he lowered his landing gear and the fellow counted down. And as they hit the five seconds, they broke through the clouds and he was less than 100 feet above the ground and he hit with a boom. And he landed his plane safely in a remote English air station that he had no clue where he was until he came up to the tower. The pilot in the Lancashire bomber flew off knowing he had uh, aviation aids and landed wherever he went to. 
But at the end of the, end of the, uh, the landing, the fellow came to the tower and said, who was that? And he said, in our station, when we see that universal signal, we send up a shepherd plane to guide planes in distress. We send up a shepherd plane to guide planes in their distress. Sometimes in life, we need a shepherd plane. We find ourselves in a place of distress that we didn't really cause for ourselves. Our communication power went out. Our visual ability was clouded over. It's not something that we intended to have happen, but in the midst of our distress, Lord, how we need a shepherd plane to come alongside us and guide us through it and get us to the place of safety. This morning, I want to speak to a an audience like you that understands that there are times in life when we need a shepherd. And I want to present to you Jesus as your good shepherd today. Uh, we, we hear a lot about Jesus, and we've come through a season of Jesus that's been really rich to us. We've seen him as a baby. We've heard his name mentioned as Messiah. We hear songs about the King Jesus, the reigning Savior, the one who will rescue us. And I want to just talk about Jesus today, but in that very narrow sense that Jesus, as your shepherd, guides you. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take them and turn with me to a familiar passage. It's John chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of John chapter 10 and talk about Jesus and how he guides us. I tell you that to set it up. Some of you don't know me, and I just, boy, of introduction, my name is Jamie McDonald. And my, my life story right now, I am the executive director of of something called New Hope Community Services Society. We uh, look after refugee families. We have apartment building. We have 10 families living with us, and they live with us for 12 to 24 months. And in that season, they find their feet, get on their feet, start walking, and we're a success when they walk out the door in 12 to 24 months. And it's over in Surrey, and some of you have know me from that context, and I appreciate your help. We've had a wonderful last 24 months of families coming to us and moving through us. Our latest family left on December 31st, so we have an empty unit. We're getting it painted and cleaned, and it'll be back into the market in the next couple of days because there's still a demand for housing, especially for refugee families coming into the Lower Mainland. And uh, if you want to talk about it, I'll meet you afterwards and give you my card. Our big, our big challenge for 2018 is because our, our board has looked at it. We've been so full. We, we had three empty weeks last year. We didn't have months empty. We had weeks empty. Uh, the board suggested that it would be smart for us to go and look and purchase another building. So we're in the process of buying a second building to look after more families. And so that's what I do. But before I was doing that, I, at 60, I retired. I was a pastor for 35 years. And uh, uh, I don't miss everything about being a pastor, but I miss this. I miss preaching. And I'm so glad you invited me to come preach today. And even if it's not good for you, it's good for me to be here. I'm feeling good about it. So. But my hope is that at the end of the time, you'll say, no, it was good for me too. Because when we hear the Word of God brought into our lives, uh, it just does good things, doesn't it? John records for us in John chapter 10 this story of Jesus. He writes, very truly I tell you Pharisees. He's speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus is. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, 
and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it in the full. Lord, help us to hear the word of God today. We read the scriptures and then we ask for your help in bringing a message from it to not just enlighten our hearts, but to quicken our hearts and to give us courage for the days and weeks and months ahead of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to draw a couple of observations from this passage for you today as we work our way through it. One of them is simply that, I find it in verse 1, is that some people don't get guidance from Jesus. Some people don't experience the guiding hand of Jesus. Some people just don't get it. They're there in verse 1. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And you know by their history, but also by experience in just reading the New Testament, these were not people who cottoned well to Jesus. The Pharisees weren't bad, bad people. They were religious people. In many ways, they're like us. We can be like them. They paid attention to the Old Testament. They studied the Scriptures. They made sure that things were in line. They didn't like disruption. They had a system going that looked after the religion of the day. And then this Jesus guy comes along, and they didn't cotton well to him. And I smile because I think a little bit deeper. Why? Why would they not cotton well to Jesus? Why did not, they not receive his guidance? Well, maybe a couple of reasons. One of those, maybe, maybe they were jealous of Jesus. You know, Jesus was pretty popular. And he had kind of a soft religious side to him. He talked about God. And he talked about living for God. And so there was a little competition going on in the God market for these guys. And, I'm, and they were feeling a little jealous because the truth is more people were listening to Jesus than were listening to them. And that caused them to stiffen against Jesus because, frankly, they were jealous. And let me tell you something. If your heart is not willing to let Jesus have preeminence, it'll be really hard for you to have his guiding hand. If you need to be in control and have control over everything, it may be difficult at times for you to know the guiding hand of God because Jesus, as Jesus, wants to be in control. If you're jealous of his influence in life, you're going to struggle with feeling his influence. Pharisees weren't just jealous, so I think they were, they were a little bit ticked off with Jesus. They were a little bit hurt by him. Because Jesus would say things, and he was really quite kind about most people, but these Pharisees he seemed to have a little bit of a buzz on for, and he would say things about them. He would call them on their stuff. He called him. He, he said really unnice things. He called them 
unwashed sepulchers. I can't use what it really means in English kind of thing, but do you realize what he's saying? He was describing as being full of, hmm, we don't say that in church. And frankly, it was true, but they didn't want to hear it because it was too painful to hear it. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you're not willing to let Jesus have his truth about you, then it's going to be hard for him to influence you and guide you. There are times when we're not as good as we think we are. We're not as well as we think we should be. When there are things that are going on that nobody else knows about but you do, and Jesus. And Jesus sometimes has to call us on our stuff. It's painful when it's done publicly. I get that. None of us likes to be humiliated or embarrassed. But sometimes in the privacy of our prayer lives, in the quietness of our evening, sometimes Jesus touches something and says, what about this over here? That's not true, is it? And if you ignore him or push him away, it's going to be hard for him to guide you. I think the Pharisees were were mad at Jesus because he called it as it was. And what he called was not them, meaning them over there, but actually me. I think they also didn't want to listen to Jesus because, frankly, it was too disruptive. Too disruptive. You, You know the system. They had a good system going. Their pensions were in place. The paychecks were solid. The crowds were coming. The system was working. Sacrifices were being made. A cut was being made on it. There was a whole system going, and Jesus had the audacity to do things like tipping tables over and calling them a den of thieves. Jesus had the audacity to say that the traditions of men are not nearly as important as the way of God. And that threatened them. It destabilized them. Friend, I want to say to you that that when Jesus comes into our lives, he doesn't just preserve the status quo. He doesn't just simply say, yeah, let's just square the corners and keep it neat and clean. He sometimes does things that are disruptive. He invites people to change careers. And your mom and dad cannot understand why you're doing so well in engineering and all of a sudden you feel like you're supposed to be a pastor. He invites people to break off things that are unhelpful. Really? Why would you break that off? Because it was not helpful. He invites people to pay attention to the poor and stay away from people that don't pay attention to the poor. Jesus can be very disruptive, and the Pharisees are an example of it. And I want to suggest to you today that, that if, you, if you don't listen to Jesus, you're not going to find his guidance. The Pharisees did And I want to suggest to you that if you don't lean in, you're never going to find Jesus leaning into you. The Pharisees did. There's a second observation we find in the next couple of verses. We find out that some people don't experience it again, but next observation, some people do because they know he's legitimate. We pick it up in the next couple of verses, but I want to set up a scenario for you. Just kind of a, let's create a TV image or a movie script here. Jesus talks about something, and I'm looking at it, uh, the, the, the sheepfold. And in your minds, I imagine with me, in the evening hours when sheep needed to be protected from predators or from thieves or from robbers or unnatural influences, they would take them to a place and, and forge up a sheepfold. And sometimes it was just branches piled high, and it's maybe two, three, four feet high. 
Sometimes it was stones that were naturally there or put together there. And so you see this sheepfold, this pen, and, and there's a spot in it that's open where, where the, sh- the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper lies. He, he wasn't the shepherd. He was a human being, and he was kind of lying there making sure people could come in and out. And, in there, and Jesus says, and now you got this idea there's a sheepfold, and there's sheep inside it, and all of a sudden in the middle, boing, there's this guy standing there. And the sheep look up and say, oh, who's that standing in the middle of it all? And Jesus says, be careful that people jump into your lives and try and influence you because you don't know who they are and where they're coming from. If they're a thief or a robber, they have self-interest. They want what's good for them. They're trying to use you and accomplish their ends. It's not about you, it's about them. They're thieves and robbers that they're to take from you to, to accumulate for themselves. And the sheep are going, okay, because there's this person in the middle of them who looks so assertive and looks so accomplished. And Jesus says, consider how they got there. How did they get into the middle of your life? And you're like, oh. He says, but there's a shepherd who is valid, who's legitimate. How do you know that? Because he came in through the gate? Yeah, but the gatekeeper opened the gate for him. The gatekeeper recognized him for who he was, and he walked legitimately through the pathway and now stands in the middle. If you need to validate that, look to the gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper says, yeah, it's him. He's the shepherd. Do you see the image? Jesus is actually talking about in the context and history of Scripture that as the shepherd of the people of Israel, John the Baptist opened the gate for him. There was some validation of Jesus. He just didn't show up out of nowhere. There was like an historical lineage. There was a a check, check, check. Jesus stands in front of these people as their shepherd because the one who was the gatekeeper opened the gate. And they could look not to Jesus who they were wondering who he was perhaps. John's going, thumbs up. And I want to suggest to you in life, and here's a a basic principle, that in our lives, Jesus is legitimized to us, probably, because somebody who was a gatekeeper in our lives opened the gate and said, I want you to meet Jesus. Think with me for a moment when you met Jesus or how you've met Jesus over the years. Maybe it was a mother who took you to Sunday school, who prayed with you at night, and she wasn't educated, she wasn't a biblical scholar, but when she prayed on her knees and held your hand, you believed what she believed because she believed it. She was a gatekeeper. She opened your heart. And she could not save you. She wasn't Jesus, but she validated this Jesus to you. And you said, I'm I'm interested. And eventually you had to make your own decision about Jesus, but there was a gatekeeper that opened the gate to your heart. Maybe it was a pastor or a youth pastor in your teenage years when life's going crazy, (laughs) chemistry is flowing, (laughs) decisions are being made, and you had a youth pastor, you had a pastor that, that was so genuinely in love with Jesus that all he did was open the door for you and say, well, I found Jesus to be real. You might want to consider it. Maybe it was a missionary who came and 
spoke his story, her story, and, and you sensed what they were saying was so real that it affected you. And they said, no, it's not me. Listen to Jesus. In all of our lives, there are gatekeepers who have opened the gate of our lives to allow Jesus to walk through. And we have to make our own decision, but we think about it. Yeah, I was influenced by that. Even today, each one of us in our own way, in some way, is a gatekeeper to someone. Uh, Often people get pressured about evangelism and getting the story straight and learning the four laws precisely and not messing up and sending somebody to hell. Uh, that was meant to be a joke. I apologize if it was offended. But sometimes we say, I don't want to say anything because if I get it wrong, they'll go to hell. Well, the truth is they're going to hell without you. They don't need you to mess them up. It's not your decision. But we need to realize that in life today, sometimes it's not what we say, it's our actions of opening the gate. It's our actions of showing that, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower. I mentioned earlier that I work with refugees of the 10 families. We always have 10 families, there's a rotation. Um, 80%, 8 out of 10 would be Muslim in background. Uh, we are not a Christian home in the sense you have to be a Christian, you have to become a Christian. But we are a Christian home in the sense that we are followers of Jesus, all of the staff, all of the volunteers. And so every couple of weeks we have a big family meal, everybody comes together and I stand up and because I'm kind of the father figure, I always self-identify, say, I'm a Jesus follower. That's what I say, I'm a Jesus follower. And I say, part of being a follower of Jesus, Jesus asks me to love people. That's really important. And if you're not feeling loved, and listen to me here, I say, please tell me, don't tell Jesus, because I'll get in trouble, kind of thing. And most people get it as an attempt at humor. But I say that, seriously, Jesus asks me to love people. I'm a Jesus. And what we're trying to say is, this is the Jesus we follow. It's up to you to decide. Um, but we're not trying to twist people in, pull people over, tip people over. We're trying to live and love the way of Jesus in such a way like gatekeepers, Jesus can have an entryway into their lives. So chances are, just as you had a gatekeeper that opened the door to your heart, there's a gatekeeper today that you are for someone else. Let's keep moving on. There's a third observation. Pick it up here. Third observation. The guiding hand of Jesus is personal, inner, relational, tailored just for you. I, I talked about this guiding Jesus. And, and if you know Jesus, let's look at how he guides us. We'll pick it up in, in, uh, in the third observations here. Let's pick it up in verse 3. And there's four or five things I want us to see here. It says that um, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. The sheep listen to his voice. They listen. <laughs> Do you remember the old TV commercial when E.F. Hutton talks? So put your hand up, that means you remember it. When E.F. Hutton talks. It was an old TV commercial, and it was an investment group, and I'm showing my age when I talk about it. But the commercial was when E.F. Hutton talks, and the whole room went, like, and listen. Because he or that group was perceived as being knowledgeable in the area of investment. It would be like... Um, um, when, who's the guy that's the big guru today in investing, the older guy from Nebraska? Warren Buffett, thank you. When Warren Buffett talks about investment, people listen kind of thing. 
I'm not that good in investments. See, I even forgot Warren Buffett's name, so I apologize. If you can look at my bank account average and say, you're right, you're just not that good, are you, kind of thing. Let me give you another metaphor. When Wayne Gretzky talks about hockey, people listen. Here's an old one as well. It doesn't happen as much, and I wish it could, and I'm not sure if it ever will, but showing my age, when Billy Graham talked about God, people listened. Jesus' followers, when they hear his voice, they listen because they know he cares about them. And when he speaks into their lives, they, they hear that nudge and they want to do what it is because they're, they're looking for guidance. As we read the Word, often stuff filters into us and Jesus uses the Scriptures. So sometimes you're walking down a particular path in life and, 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 and something comes up and you want to react to it and you hear Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged. Because your natural inclination is to... Sometimes you're going through a situation in life and, and somebody does something or somebody says something or something happens to you and as you're about to react to it, you remember the familiar words of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The shepherd guides you. Sometimes you're walking through a situation and, <laughs> and somebody's looking for something and asking for something and they're dirty and they're unclean and they're homeless and all this kind of thing. And, you're, you know, we feel like, oh, and then you hear the words of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And you're like, mm. Jesus guides us. We, his voice speaks into us and his voice is, is a gentle nudging and many of you have heard that and felt that. Guidance isn't precision. I want to draw a distinction here. When I was a boy growing up in northern Ontario, uh, we lived out about, oh, six or eight kilometers outside of town, about five miles. And though the acreage we lived on was only a couple of acres, we had hundreds of acres of bush country around us. We were like a, a solo property out on the road. And early in my days, I was about eight or nine years old, uh, it's a different day, although that was a different place. Maybe it's still the same. For my eighth birthday, my dad gave me a fairly expensive compass. And he says, don't go anywhere without this. And so like a young uh, Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, I hooked it on my belt and never went. I always had my compass. And what I learned was that north is always north. And periodically, I'd be out walking through the brush. I have a younger brother. He's uh, 18 months younger than I. And we would get into places where we're looking like, man, I don't recognize this. Where are we? And we'd look around and say, I don't recognize it either. And it's not that we were hundreds of miles away from home. We were maybe only a couple of miles from where we grew up. But I'd haul up my compass, and I would locate north, and I had a general sense of where we were. And we would start to move. And sometimes you couldn't get through where you wanted to go through, so you had to go around something. But you're always looking for north, and you go back to it, and you get to north. And that's what guidance is. Guidance isn't always a straight path through, but it's a belief that we're going in the right direction. We're going to take the steps we need to stake. Let's keep taking them. He says, uh, my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. Let, let's pick it up. There's something else he says uh, in the verse. He says, um, he calls his own sheep by name. This 
guiding hand of Jesus isn't just general post-it notes on the door as you're going out. It's not, you know, the moss on the north side of the trees is always thicker. That's an old northern Ontario truth. (laughs) It's personal. He says, John, this is for you. Anita, I want you to hear this. Mike, listen to me. He calls us by name. There are approximately 7.8 billion people in the world. Of those 7.8, 2.6 identify as Jesus' followers. We could talk about how many are deeply in love with Jesus, but, but he knows their names. Jesus has an ability to know everybody's name. And when he greets you, he doesn't say, hey, you. <laughs> he calls your name. Uh, and he knows your personal name. Uh, I, I have a distinction. I always introduce myself as Jamie McDonald. And uh, uh, that's been my name I'm, since I was a little, little boy. That was what my parents called me. But my birth certificate name is James. And so if somebody says, hey, James, I don't get it. I don't recognize it. Because it's not my name. I've been Jamie all my life. A few years back, I was doing a lot of flying, and one time I came to the airline check-in kiosk, and I punched in my name, and it said, please see the front attendant, or the front of the desk. So I went to the front of the desk, and she looked at me, and she looked at my passport. I said, wait a minute. She went over to a phone. She phoned somebody, came back, she said, yeah, no problem, gave me my ticket. And I thought, oh, interesting. And um, the, uh, uh, it happened again, and... Uh, the second time it happened, I said, excuse what's going on here? And she said, well, somebody with the name Jamie McDonald, who lives in the city you live in, is on our no-fly list kind of thing. So you're going to have to change your name to your legal name, and that's the law now, by the way. You can't get away with it. And so now, whenever I fly on an airline, they, they page James McDonald. I'm thinking, who, who are they talking to kind of thing? Yeah. Because we all have a personal name. Jesus comes to you and to me, and he calls you by name. Um, I don't know how he does it, because <laughs> after about 100, 150, 200 people, my brain started to seize up, and I love all of you, but I couldn't get everybody's name in the same hand, and your pastor's probably better than I. It's amazing how pastors can accumulate names. But there's something about when people call you by name. It expresses a relationship, an intimacy. There's a third thing he says in, in verse 4. It says that when he has, uh, it says at the end of verse 3, he leads them out And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And it speaks of the kind of leadership. He leads by example. As the good shepherd, he doesn't just say, go check it out. He actually goes in front of people. It's fascinating. We hear lots of talks about leadership today, and I just want to just touch this. I think the strongest case or the strongest base or the strongest way of leadership is by example. If you want to be a leader, show up early. Lead by example. If you want to be a leader, stay to the end. Lead by example. If you want to be a leader, model the kind of behavior you want to see modeled. I remember a few years ago, I was at Moody Bible Institute, and it was a pastor's gathering. And after the gathering, it wasn't in a sanctuary. It was in a a, a hall like this, and we had to take down all the chairs and put up tables. And there were maybe three or 400 pastors there, and all pastors are, you know, inclined that way. So I started slinging tables, and as I looked up from the table, there in front of me was Dr. Joe Stoll, who some of you may remember was the president of Moody Bible at the time. 
And I looked across at him, and I was a young pastor in my 30s. I said, Dr. Stoll, you don't need to be doing this. And he says, oh, you bet I do. Never confuse my title with my role. My title is president. My role is to be a servant. And I thought to myself, there's a man leading by example. And what this tells us is that Jesus leads us. He goes in front of us. He doesn't ask us to do things that he himself. And it even to the point where you will go into situations in life, and right next to you, if not next to you, a foot in front of you, Jesus is already there. He's leading his sheep. There's a fourth thing that comes up. We pick it up in verse 4. It says they, they follow him because they know his voice. They, it's, it's more than just recognizing it. They actually know it. They, they, ah, that's Jesus' voice. In the clamor of so many voices, so many opinions, so many advisors, so many people that want to tell you what to do, Jesus' people recognize that voice. They know it instinctively. Some of you are mothers in the room, and you, how, I don't know how you do it, but you can go into a daycare or go into a kindergarten or go into a classroom, and there'll be 25 children all talking and screaming, and you'll hear your daughter's voice. Or you'll go to a playground, and you'll see all these kids running around, and you'll say, you'll call out your son's name, and he'll respond, here I am, and where? But you know exactly because you recognize his voice, you know it kind of thing. Um, Barb and I have twin daughters, and here's where the story breaks down. We have twin daughters. They're 35 now, and uh, they, they don't have exactly the same voices, but, but when they call me up, they, they say, hi, Dad, and I'm thinking, I got a 50-50 chance of getting this one right. <laughs> I don't know their voice that well. Their older sister I can get in a, in a heartbeat, but it's funny how you get to know the voice of someone you love, and you respond to it. Um, in a church like this, I pastored over the years in always larger churches, and I always felt a little inadequate because you know my name and I don't know yours. And so I'd phone somebody in the church, and this was in the day when email wasn't available, and I would get through and there wasn't a voice message, and I would always connect and I'd say, well, hi, Joanne, this is Pastor Jamie calling from church, thinking that she might not recognize who it was. And she's like, oh, hi, Pastor. I knew you had a hello. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Really? You hear a voice, and you begin to, and that's the way it is with Jesus. When you, when you walk with him, you begin to recognize his voice so that in times of he nudges you and gives you guidance. Let me give you a fourth series of observations, and we'll round third base. It says in the fourth observation, let's pick it up, following Jesus to God makes a difference to people's lives. Jesus does something in his story to the, the Pharisees. He actually changes the picture in verse 7. Um, Verse 6, he says, he's used a figure of speech, so they didn't get it. So he switches the story. And so 7 through 10 is actually a different picture. It's not a sheepfold. He actually calls himself a gate. And, and we pick it up there. Very true, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. If you want to get to God, you've got to go through me. If you want to find God, you've got to go through Jesus. It's, it's a bold, audacious claim. It's it's as strong as no man comes to the Father except by me. I am the gate to God. It'd be like if you came to me and said, I want to go to Seattle this afternoon. I'd say, okay. Do you know how to get to Seattle? Well, yeah. How do I get to Seattle? Well, you get right down to White Rock or the border, and you get on I-5. And if you follow I-5, depending on the traffic, an hour and a half, two hours, maybe two and a half at the most, you'll be right in the middle of Seattle. And they say, are you sure of that? I said, I'm sure of that. 
Are you really sure of that? Yeah, because I want to get to Seattle. Well, if you want to get to Seattle, go down I-5. And somebody says to me, well, um, I don't want to do that. I say, really? Now, I want to do it my own way. I say, okay, how are you going to do it? Well, I, I, I Google something. If I go up to Coquihalla, I can get to Kelowna, and there's a logging road through the back of Kelowna. You cut down through it, and it may or may not be possible this time of year. But if I work at it, and i got a four-wheel drive, I think i got a half a shot of getting to Seattle. And, and I want to say to them, do you really, really want to go to Seattle? Or do you want to have your own way? And that's the way it is with Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to get to God, if you really, really, really want to get to God, if you're really serious about connecting with God, there's lots of alternatives out there. But trust me, you come through me, you get to God. And what happens when you do? We pick it up in verse 9 and verse 10. He gives us three things. Look at verse 9. He says, when they, when they walk through the gateway, I'm in verse 9, they will come in and go out. Let's pick it up the latter part before that one. Um, I am the gate, whoever introduced me. Put my glasses on. There we go. Um, uh, it says the latter part of verse, they, whoever enters through me will be saved or kept saved. If you come to Jesus, and I, I like that word. We, we often use it a lot in a lot of contexts. We think of saved in the sense of released, in the sense of rescued, in the sense of delivered, in the sense of no more guillotine blade across our neck. And I want to use a more soft word. I say, when you come to Jesus and genuinely enter into the presence of God, you can be assured that it is safe. You're safe. There's no more condemnation on you. If you don't know Jesus, there is. A righteous, holy God has his standards. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. There's a lot of scripture that talks about when you mess up, there are consequences, eternal consequences. The holy God has staked his claim. But then he also says, but he's a loving and forgiving God and Jesus over here. And Jesus takes that and provides safety in it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The very issues that, that put them at peril, because the truth is, a righteous, holy God has a huge case against people. It's not just a love, love, love. He's holy, holy, holy. So what are we going to do about it? He says, trust Jesus. You're safe from the wrath of a righteous God. But not only are you safe from that, you're safe from the judgment of others. You, you know, sometimes in life, we are more victimized by others' opinions of us, or what we think their opinion is, than even God's. And sometimes we care more about what other people think of us than what God does. And that's a very, very difficult spot to be in. I know people well enough. Sometimes we're so driven by the anxieties of what she thinks of me or what they said about me or what they believe about me. It can drive you batty. And the truth is, my friend, if you are in Jesus, who cares what they think? Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, I know people have opinions, but they don't count. <laughs> really? No. I know I have my opinions about me, and they don't count. What really counts is God's opinion of me. And if you are in Jesus, if you walk through Jesus into the sheepfold, God cares about you. We're safe from what others think. There's a third way we're safe. We're safe from our own self-condemnation. Have you ever thought about that? Is that sometimes it's not God that we're afraid of. It's not even people's opinions. Sometimes it's our own 
inner condemnation. When we get on our own case, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm such an idiot. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, I can't believe I did it again. And sometimes the greatest enemy is ourself. And Jesus says, I am your advocate. 1 John 2 verse 1. I'm your lawyer. I'll plead your case. Trust me. I'll look after you. If you come to Jesus, you're safe. Secondly, he says that they, 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 uh, they're nurtured. They're cared for. Look, look up to the next line. It says that when they, when they come to me, uh, they'll come in and go out and find pasture. Find pasture. We, we mentioned it earlier in the, in the shepherd's psalm, this idea that really he's going to look after me. Yeah, 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 you'll be okay. What you need, you'll find. There'll be enough for you. Wow. Thirdly, it says they experience a better life. That's verse 10. Uh, you know the familiar verse, the thief comes only to, theal, to, to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let me finish with this. If you come to Jesus, the promise today is your life will be better. Doesn't say it'll be perfect. Doesn't say it'll be hunky-dory. Sometimes it'll be disruptive, but the truth is if you come to Jesus, your life will be better. I'll close with a story. Um, my first church was in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Woo-woo, Winnipeg? Anybody? No? Come on, you guys. Yeah, right, I know. It was only minus 38 there this Christmas, which was colder than Mars, but that's another whole story. It was January. I was a young pastor, and it was a Saturday about 1130 in the morning. And um, because I was a young pastor, it took me longer to do things, and I was still working on my sermon on Sunday, on Saturday morning at 1130. I'm in the study at the church, and the phone rang. And it was one of those January days, it was cold and windy and blustery, not much traffic around. And the phone, the person on the line said, are you open today? I still remember the voice saying, are you open today? And I'm thinking they may have misdialed the 7-Eleven or something like that. It was one of those days. And I said, well, yeah, you've reached the church, and I'm Pastor Jamie. Is there something I can help you with? And the person the other end of the line was a woman says, good, I need to see a minister now. And so about 10 minutes later, the, the outside door of the church, it was locked. I heard the, the doorbell and the banging. I went up and opened it. And as I was in my early 30s. She had been in her late 30s. The person came into my office and sat down and, and began to describe that a year ago, she had been diagnosed with cancer. And it was a leukemia that was a little vicious. This is in the early 80s now. And there wasn't a 100% guarantee that she would recover from it. And she wanted to know what happens when I die. And I said to her, well, it depends. What do you want to happen? And she says, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And I said, well, it's your choice. If you trust Jesus, he will take you to heaven. You get on I-5 and drive straight down I-5, you'll get to see. If you get on Jesus and walk with Jesus, he'll take you to heaven. And there in my office, in the craziest of stories, this woman gave her life to Christ. She didn't die. But six weeks later, she started coming to church and said, they said it's gone into remission. My numbers are down. I said, that's amazing. But six weeks later, she joins the choir of the church. It was a day when you had choirs and there were 30, 40 voices. And Jennifer sang in the choir. I didn't know a lot about her. 
I didn't do a deep scan or anything. All I knew was that she prayed to receive Christ, wanted to serve Jesus, go for it kind of thing. And one Sunday, she's in the choir singing, and it's a large church. It's like this one. It was had lots of people in it. And as she's looking out from the choir, she sees an individual in the back over there, a single person, about 25, 30 years older than her, sitting over there. And she makes eye contact, and he makes eye contact with her, and they both kind of lift their eyes up. And afterwards, she hauls me over to meet this gentleman. And she says, Pastor, you don't know this, but I used to serve liquor in this bar, and I'm like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> and she says, and this is so-and-so. He was one of my best customers. And she said to him, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he says to her, what are you doing here? And uh, she says, about three months ago, I found Jesus. And he looked at her and says, I found Jesus a month ago. And she said to him, has it made any difference? And he says, oh, yeah. He says, what difference it made here? And she says to him, better. It's just better. When you follow Jesus, he gives you a life that's better. And so I, I close with that and say, you know, Jennifer's story, you follow Jesus and it's not hunky-dory, it's not perfect, it's not totally square, it doesn't line up all the time, but like that North Star, he's always guiding you and where he takes you to is better. How are you doing in your journey with Jesus? Are you letting him guide you? Because he wants to. Let's pray. Jesus, we gather here in this place because we love you, and there's a lot involved there, but we long to hear from you and find out from you that which is best for us. And so as we stand on the threshold of 2018, we, we invite you to really speak into our lives. We want to hear your voice. Lord, we want to be respectful and responsive to what you're telling us, so help us to have the courage to say yes to you. And Lord, in places where people are just caught in a fog bank, would you come by and make connection with them and show them the way through? And may they give you all the glory and all the joy. In Jesus' name.